Like Eric said, we're going to um, be reading from the Old Testament passages that point to the Messiah. And this week, we're going to begin by reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard services have been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Mix straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The word of the Lord. We human beings typically won't face reality until reality is forced upon us. One writer says that reality is what we bump into when we're wrong. We typically won't face reality until it's forced upon us. In other words, uh, it's only when things get real that we get real. And one of the main realities that we're bumping into this year is the reality that we are not in control. Sure, we, uh, we control some things like our thermostat or uh, what we watch on TV, but the things that matter, the things that really count, we're not in control. We're not in control over whether we wake up tomorrow morning. We're not in control over what other people do. We're not in control over nature. We want to be in control. In fact, one of the 
primary characteristics of our modern world is that we human beings deeply desire to be in control over things like humanity and history and nature. And we also have a, a, a very powerful confidence in human power to actually accomplish that. So for instance, there was a movie a few years ago called The Martian. Matt Damon is an astronaut who's stranded on Mars and has to figure out a way to survive for four years until they come and rescue him. He creates a video log of his experience. So every day you see him trying to find a way to stay alive um, until they can come and rescue him. And it's not going very well until he eventually gets to a point where in one day's entry, he's looking right into the camera for his video entry. And he's saying, in the face of overwhelming odds, I'm left with only one option. I'm going to have to science the crap out of this. And he does. Friends, that is our attitude towards the biggest problems of our life, that through things like science, technology, medicine, and politics, that we can control history and humanity and nature. We are supremely confident in our ability to do that. And yet, um, we are in a death grip uh, with control, and yet that death grip is an illusion. We are not in control. That is one of the main realities that this year has been forcing us to face. We don't want to face it. We want to be in control, but we're not in control. What does that lead to? Well, on the one hand, we are supremely confident in the possibility of human control, but on the other hand, we're constantly being crushed with discouragement and despair when things come crashing down on our heads. Now, I admit that is a bleak picture, but it's precisely into the, that bleakness that the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks most powerfully. So in the weeks leading up to Christmas, we're looking at a series of Old Testament passages, prophecies that speak of the coming Messiah, a king who would come into the world to bring healing and rescue to the world. And this week, the passage that we just read is one of the most famous prophecies of all. In fact, it's quoted in all four of the gospel accounts of Jesus's life. It says, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. In other words, somebody's coming. So let's find out more about this by asking three questions. Uh, and the questions are, who is coming? Why is he coming? And how do we prepare the way? Okay. First, who is coming? Well, um, the very uh, most famous part of this passage is verses three and four. Uh, it says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. Now, this would have been a very familiar picture to anyone in the ancient world. Whenever a king would come to visit a city, they would build a special road for the arrival of the king. But here, it's not a special road. It's not a new road. It's a new world. It's not just building a bridge over a deep valley. No, that would mean that this king has to accommodate himself to the realities of this world. But when this king comes, he's not accommodating himself to the realities of this world. This is a king who, when he comes, the realities of this world accommodate themselves to the reality of this king. So it's not just building a bridge over a deep valley. The valley disappears. It's not just building a road through a mountain pass. The mountains are coming down. The arrival of this king completely alters the reality of this world. That's what's going on here. 
Now, here's why this is so amazing when you think about it, because this is telling us that this is not just any king who's coming into the world. Verse 3 tells us it's God himself. God himself is coming into this world, and that's especially clear when we look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. It says, the glory of God will be revealed. Now, that means that this is not something that already exists inside of this world. It's something that comes from outside of this world into this world. So what is glory? The Hebrew word literally means weight. In other words, the more glory something has, the more reality it has. For instance, imagine that you were to drop a feather onto the surface of a pond of water. It would barely cause a ripple in the water because the reality of the feather, it doesn't have enough reality to alter the reality of the pond. But imagine you were to drop a boulder onto the surface of the pond. There would be water sloshing around everywhere. When the boulder comes into contact with the pond, uh, the, the reality of the boulder alters the reality of the pond. Why? Because it weighs more. It has more glory. Now, here's what this means. We put all of this together, and the prophet Isaiah is telling us that, that God is coming into the world, and that when this God, when this king comes into the world, the reality of this God is going to completely transform the reality of this world, because there is nothing that has more reality than the glory of God. It changes everything. The glory of God changes the world. And I'll tell you what, we all long for this. Whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God or you're somewhere in between those two things, we all long for this. We all long for a greater glory, a greater reality that would transform the reality of this world. Because if there is no God, then by definition, this world is already exactly the way it's supposed to be. And yet we know it's not. How do we know that? If this world is already the way it's supposed to be, why does the evil and suffering and injustice of this world bother us so much? Why do we long for something to transform the reality of this world? Andrea Palpent Dilly uh, wrote a memoir called Faith and Other Flat Tires, which is a great title, by the way. Uh, her parents were medical missionaries in Kenya. So by the time she was a teenager, she had seen so much death and suffering that she seriously questioned the goodness of God. By the time she was in her 20s, she had abandoned her Christian faith altogether until she was at a party one night and got into a conversation with a young man. It was one of those philosophical conversations you get into sometimes at parties after a couple of drinks. The young man was saying that there's no such thing as objective right and wrong. And before she even had a chance to think about it, Andrea Palpentdilly immediately started responding. She said, but wait a minute, if, if morals are totally subjective, then you can't say Hitler was wrong. You can't say that allowing babies to starve is unjust. You can't condemn evil. There has to be an objective moral standard up there. And when she waved her arm in the air, she said, up there, she, she drew a horizontal line in the air. And that was the moment that she says was the beginning of her journey back to faith in God. Here's how she describes it a little later in an interview she gave. She said, when people ask me what drove me out of the doors of the church, and then what brought me back, my answer to both questions is the same. I left the church 
because I was mad at God about human suffering and injustice. And I came back to church because of that same struggle. I realized that I couldn't even talk about justice without standing inside of a theistic framework. In a naturalistic worldview, an orphan in the slums of Nairobi can only be explained in terms of survival of the fittest. We're all just animals in a godless world, space and resources. The idea of justice doesn't really mean anything. To talk about justice, you have to talk about objective morality. And to talk about objective morality, you have to talk about God. Friends, we long for something to transform the reality of our world. If there is no God, not only does that longing make no sense, but the power to change the world really is all up to us after all. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen who is coming. It's this glorious God, the king of creation, who's coming to transform the world. But secondly, why is he coming? Well, God himself tells us the answer to this question um, at the um, very beginning of the passage. He says, I'm coming to comfort people. But it's not just any old comfort. He says this, comfort, comfort my people. Whenever a Hebrew word gets doubled like that, it's a way of making an emphasis. So it's not just any old comfort. This is deep comfort. It's an abounding comfort. Comfort, comfort. Here's why this is so amazing. Um, chapter 40, the beginning of this passage, is a major turning point in the whole book of Isaiah. For the first 39 chapters, God is warning his people Israel to stop worshiping other gods, stop oppressing the poor, to stop trusting in things like military, economic, and political power. Yet they refuse to stop. So at the very end of chapter 39, God promises Israel that he's going to send them into exile. It's a disastrous word. And in fact, Israel did go into exile. The nation of Babylon invaded Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed their homes, and carried the people away into captivity, away into the wilderness. So you remember uh, back in verse 3, it talks about a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That's saying that God is coming for his people in the wilderness. Now, what is a wilderness? Because this isn't the first time Israel has been in the wilderness. They were already there once before when God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the wilderness. But now they're back there again. Why? What is a wilderness? A wilderness, well, in the Bible, a wilderness is a desert. That means there's no life support system. There's no food, no water, no shelter. The wilderness is a place where there's nothing we can depend on except God. And that's the point. The wilderness is a place where human self-sufficiency comes to an end, and we are forced to the realization that we are not in control. We're not in control. Now, like we said, if there is no God and this world is all there is, then we human beings really are, we have no other option but to try to change the world ourselves. But if there is a God, and yet we live as if there's not, then that's like high treason. So for instance, the Israelites believed in God, and yet instead of trusting God, they were trusting economic barriers, and it ended up them oppressing the poor. They also, instead of trusting God for national security, they trusted um, political and military power. If you think about it, you realize we're really not all that different from Israel. 
we too are trusting in human self-sufficiency in the pride and the arrogance of our hearts we make a god out of human self-sufficiency we believe in god many people believe in god um, or at least people believe in some kind of divine being or or something greater than ourselves but in our pride and our arrogance we act as if god doesn't exist we make a god out of human self-sufficiency you remember how in the middle of this passage it talks about uh, the grass fades and the flower falls and it says all the people are grass that's what that's talking about the, the, the idol of human self-sufficiency is a false god that ultimately fades away we don't have that kind of power and yet we refuse to stop trusting in human power so for instance why um what is the biggest political threat today if you're on uh, the right you might say that the biggest political threat is those godless progressives. And if you're on the left, you might say the biggest threat is those uh, bigoted, science-denying conservatives. But really, the biggest threat is that we put so much trust in politics in the first place. So that if your candidate wins, then you are literally leaping for joy. But if your candidate loses, then you feel like America is doomed. Or, you know, science and technology are wonderful things. We are so grateful for the technology that allows us to be together right now. Science and technology have done wonderful things for so many people, and yet the idea that science can explain everything and solve all of our problems, that is the height of human pride and arrogance. Friends, when our pride and arrogance fails us, when the things we trust in fail us, and boy, they sure are failing us right now, aren't they? When that happens, we're in a wilderness. And this year really feels like a wilderness, doesn't it? Everything we're trusting in is being stripped away. And when that happens, when you're in a wilderness, we really have two possible responses to that. The first is despair. Despair is what happens when human self-sufficiency fails us, yet we, yet we continue to, uh, to keep trusting in human self-sufficiency. Despair is what happens when we would rather be miserable on our own terms rather than happy on anyone else's, especially God's. But there's another response when you're in a wilderness, and that's what makes this passage so amazing because it's into the bleakness of our pride and our despair that God brings this word of comfort. He brings a word of comfort. Now, here's the big question. What does this comfort look like? How does God bring comfort into the wilderness, into this world uh, where we're in a wilderness of pride and despair? How does he bring comfort into this world? Well, the very end of this passage shows us. In verse 10, it says, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. Now, the image here is of a, a great mighty warrior. It, God is pictured as a warrior, and this word arm, the Hebrew word, is a metaphor for the divine power of God. This is saying that this is a warrior God who's coming into the world to defeat his enemies and to crush everyone who opposes him. But the amazing thing about this is, what is the powerful arm of this warrior God actually doing? Well, verse 11 shows us. It says, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the limbs in his arms and carries the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. In other words, this warrior is a shepherd. This, this warrior God is a God who comes into this world as a shepherd and he uses his arm not to crush rebels, 
but to comfort them and to hold them in his arms close to his heart. In fact, it's even more amazing than that. Friends, this passage stretches the boundaries of our imagination because what is this warrior God doing? Notice it says, see, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Now, it would be easy to look at this and think that this is talking about God's reward to us. In other words, that if we're really good and obedient and we live a good life, that God will look favorably upon us and that he will reward us. But that's not what this is saying. It's not saying that it's not talking about God's reward to us. It's saying we are his reward. We are his recompense. It's saying that the God who owns the mountains and the oceans and the stars of the heaven counts them as nothing compared to you. You are his reward. Why is this God coming? He's coming for you. He's coming to bring a word of comfort, to, to bring his powerful arm and to hold you in his arms and bring you close to his heart. And that leads to our last point. We've seen who is coming. It's, it's the glorious God, the king who's coming into this world to transform the reality of this world. Why is he coming? He's coming to comfort you, to hold you in his arms and bring comfort in a wilderness world. But lastly, how do we prepare the way for this God? How do we prepare the way? Well, I want you to notice that um, before this God actually brings this comfort into the world, there's an announcement that goes out ahead of time, and we see it in verse 10. It says, you who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Now that phrase, good news, literally, that's a word that means gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is not good advice about something we're supposed to do. That would be traditional religion. Traditional religion is constantly telling us, here's what you must do. Here's how you must live. And if you do it right, if you live well enough, then God will see you, he'll pay attention to you, and he will bless you with a wonderful life. That's not what this is talking about, because that's not the gospel. Good news does, does not mean advice about something you must do. Good news is an announcement of something that is being done for you. The traditional religion is all about what you must do. And if you think about it, you realize that um, secularism is, is the same basic approach to life. Traditional religion says it's all about human self-sufficiency for achieving our own salvation. You live a good life, you do the right thing, God will reward you. It's basically about us doubling down on human self-sufficiency, which is the basis of all our problems in the first place. You realize secularism is the same basic approach to life, yet without a God? It's all about human self-sufficiency to achieve our own salvation. That is not good news. Good news is not advice about something we must do. It's an announcement about something that is being done for us. That's the gospel, because how does this God bring comfort into the world? Why is he able to do that? What does it all depend on? Well, it doesn't depend on you or me. It all depends on God. And we see that especially if we go back to the beginning of this passage. Um, when God proclaims comfort to the world, notice he says, proclaim to her, to her, that's his people, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, it might be easy to look at this and think this is talking about God punishing us double for all of our sins, but that's not what it's saying. It's not talking about double punishment. 
It's talking about double payment, and there's a difference between those two things. What does that mean? Well, remember what we said. Um, all four gospel accounts of Jesus's life quote this passage to talk about the arrival of Jesus on earth. Now, we just saw this passage is talking about God, saying that God himself is going to come to earth. But then all four gospels say that, actually, yeah, this is talking about Jesus. He is the king to come into this world. Jesus is the warrior shepherd come into this world. Not only does he bring um, great might and power, but he also brings incredible tenderness and mercy. Now, where do we see all of those things coming together in one place? Only on the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus made a double payment for us. Not only did he pay the penalty, the punishment for our high treason, that would be one payment, and that would be enough to get us out of prison, so to speak, but not enough to bring us in from the wilderness. For instance, have you ever seen Les Mis? When the convict, Jean Valjean, um, gets released from prison, he's paid for his sin, right? He's been set free, but he's still a beggar. He's still wandering around half naked and starving. No one will take him in. One payment gets us out of prison, but it's not enough to bring us in from the cold. No, on the cross of Jesus Christ, he made a double payment. Not only did he pay the penalty for our sin, but he also made the payment to welcome us into the arms of God, into the heart of God, into the love and the joy and the delight of God. Friends, the cross is the place where we see the glory of God revealed and the reality that transforms this world. That's why Isaiah says, listen to the announcement, hear the good news. The glorious king is coming into this world to transform this world. Behold your God. Where does that get fulfilled? I don't know if you remember from the Gospel of John, but when Pontius Pilate, the governor of Jerusalem, he had Jesus beaten and flogged and tortured, and then he brought Jesus out. He presented Jesus to the people, and he said, Behold your king. And, and when you saw Jesus beaten and bloodied like that, if you had been there, no, nobody there looking at Jesus beaten and bloodied like this, flogged and tortured like this, would have said, ah, behold the king, behold the glory of God revealed into the world that's going to transform all of reality. No one would ever have said that. Friends, what is a real wilderness? What is a wilderness really? A wilderness is a place when God feels farthest, he's working the hardest. The wilderness is a place when God feels farthest, he's working the hardest. Don't you see? The cross is the ultimate wilderness because the cross is the ultimate place where if you had been there, you would have looked at Jesus hanging on the cross and you would have said, God couldn't possibly be working in this. In fact, his most devoted followers, they all looked at Jesus hanging on the cross and they were all wailing and moaning and caterwauling in agony because they said, God has abandoned us. God is farthest away. God can't possibly be working in this. But friends, the cross is the place where God was working the hardest. The wilderness place would feel this work harder on the cross. God felt farthest from Jesus so that he'd be hardest at work in your life. Now, what does this mean for us? What do we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? How do we actually prepare the way for this Lord, for this King? Well, remember what Isaiah says. He says, prepare the way for the Lord. How? Every valley raised up, every mountain made low. If, if you would indulge me, I would just riff a little bit 
on this by offering you a couple of suggestions. Ask yourself a couple of questions. And the first one is this, what mountains of pride and arrogance need to come down in my heart? In other words, how am I trusting in myself? How am I trusting in human power? How am I in a cage match of control with God? How am I trusting in myself? What mountains of pride need to come down in your heart? But secondly, ask yourself, what valleys of despair need to be lifted up? How am I convincing myself that my failures are, are um, so great that God could never be at work in my life? You know, pride says, I'm so strong, I don't need God's help. Despair says, I'm so bad, I don't deserve God's help. The gospel says, behold your king. When you behold Jesus on the cross, that lifts you up out of your despair, but it also humbles you in your pride. Because our pride and our despair are no match for the comfort-bestowing, glory-revealing, reality-transforming, wilderness-redeeming love and work of God in your life. Friends, the wilderness is a place when God feels farthest, he's working the hardest. Are you in a wilderness right now? Trust God in the wilderness where you can't see him because you do see him loving you from the wilderness of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. Glory revealing God, reality transforming God, wilderness redeeming God. Thank you for sending Jesus to reveal your glory into this world, even and even especially in the places where it looks like you're farthest away, where, where you're least at work. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning, that you would bring that word of comfort ever more deeply into our hearts, that in our own hearts, we would prepare the way for you by laying low the mountains of pride and by lifting up the valleys of despair and by allowing that to happen by beholding our King Jesus on the cross, who is making the double payment for us that we could be not only set free, but welcomed into your presence. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.